I would now like to introduce our speaker for the evening, Nancy. My name is Nancy, and I'm a very grateful compulsive eater. Hi, Nancy. And happy to be here. I, I believe I was here a couple of years ago. And, um, and you know what? The room is familiar, but everything else has changed. I mean, changed this church and the whole and how I got here. Anyway, um, it's delightful to be back up here. Um, I want to tell you before I say anything at all that on page 92 of the AA 12 and 12, it says that as an insurance policy against big shotism, it's necessary for me to remember that I'm abstinent today by the grace of God. And that at any success I may be having is his success, not mine. And um, following that, I also have a prayer that I have at every OA meeting I attend. And that is that uh, when you leave here tonight, you will take the message that your higher power, whatever it is, has for you and not the words of the messenger. I ask only to be a channel. But um, I believe, as I do with every OA meeting, that whether you're new or whether you've been around since the beginning, that um, when you leave here tonight, your life will not be the same. And you may choose not to come back, but you're never going to be the same again for having been in a meeting of All Readers Anonymous. And that's the power and the energy that are that work in this room. I speak only for myself. Um, I had, and um, I do not speak for OA as a whole, just my opinion. And trust me, I have friends that are very glad of that. Um, <laughs> but they love me and they accept me anyway. And um, the 28th of September, um, I marked 34 years in Overeaters Anonymous. And I have my current abstinence in, it was 31 years in July. Um, I had, um, with the exception of about 15 pounds that the menopause wrecking crew uh, <laughs> deposited right around my middle, I'm uh, maintaining, by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous, about 145 pound weight loss. Thank you, God. Um, I came into OA, um, well, I guess maybe I better back up and say that. Um, that I come from an alcoholic home, which I'm sure is not any great surprise to a lot of people here. And uh, my father was a raging alcoholic. And um, he was one of these that uh, would beat his kids. And there was a time that, uh, and I was the oldest child, so, you know, I was first in line. And, um, and, by, and so I, I, got, I got beat up a lot at home. And um, I can remember being very young, about seven years old, and, and, um, and getting a beating from Daddy. And, and, and it, this happened every day. And he would pass out in the other room, and I would find myself in the kitchen, and I would be going for the comfort foods. And I would be sobbing, because I was not allowed to cry when I got beat. And, um, and I was not allowed to show any emotion. And, uh, you know, you, can, you know where that goes. Anyway, um, being in the kitchen and, um, you know how when you, when you sob real hard and you cry real hard, how you get that lump in your throat, you know? And, and I can remember that stuffing the food down, you know, the sticky, gooey, sweet, soft substances, the comfort foods, and, and I couldn't swallow. I, it hurt so hard 
when I would when I would try and swallow, but I still managed to stuff it down because that provided me some relief from the pain that I was I was having. And um, and that and that's how I dealt with life at that time. You know, um, our home was very restricted. There were things that I could and could not do. There were clothes that I could and could not wear. There was um, things that I could and could not go to. And uh, but the only thing that was not restricted in our home was food. And we could have as much of it as we wanted and, and whenever we wanted it, you know. And, um, and many times, even without the beatings, I would find myself dealing with something, some feelings that, um, that I didn't recognize as feelings then. And um, I would be in the kitchen and I would um, start eating. Uh, when I was 12 years old, my parents divorced. And um, it was a really lengthy and ugly and messy divorce. And... Um, um, a lot of the child abuse had been brought into it and, and other things as well. And, and so um, by this time I'm heading toward 200 pounds. And um, so in kind of an effort to wipe the slate clean, my mother took me to the family doctor. Um, wonderful man, great doctor. And I'm, I'm not into bashing the medical profession. That's the way they treated obesity in those days. But he put me on diet pills and started me off on a real mild dexedrine. And that launched me into a 20-year career of speed, and um, which ended the night that I came to my first OA meeting. And um, anyway, I got uh, um, I found out a few things about those diet pills. I'm telling you, you know, you know, 12 years old, and um, I like to tell the women that I sponsor. I found out that I could clean the state of New Jersey with a toothbrush and not stop for lunch. <laughs> And the other thing that I found out was that I could manipulate my food because I had to go back every month in order to be able to have the prescription renewed, see. And um, so I could manipulate my food so that I could, uh, and my behavior, so that I could eat what I wanted to for three weeks and then that fourth week before I had to go back, I would starve, just stop eating. And that would allow me to drop enough weight that um, he would renew my prescription. And, um, and so I kept that going, see. And along with manipulating my food and my behavior, I began to see that, um, that I could manipulate the people around me because as long as I kept losing weight, they were all tugging for me, you know. And, um, and except, you know, um, I never realized that. What had happened, what really happened to me is that I developed this attitude, and I'm, I'm sure there are people in here who may be able to identify, and that is that I, I grew up feeling like I never belonged. I never belonged to the human race. I was the missing piece. As a matter of fact, I was at a retreat not long ago, and they gave away these little piece, pieces of a puzzle, and I took mine home and, and framed it because that's the story of my life. That's my fat picture, see, is the missing piece. And... Um, and there were times in my life when I felt like a kid at the candy store window, you know, with nose pressed against, watching all the people on the other side, enjoying life and having fun and, and able to, you know, to eat and drink what they wanted. And, and, um, and that's as close as I could get to it. I, you know, I just couldn't bridge that gulf. I, I still, and I became very outgoing and I became a people pleaser. No surprise there either. And, um, and I, and I uh, started building a, a whole suitcase full of masks 
see, and uh, because those are pre- what protected me from the pain. And, and one of my favorite ones was class clown. And um, school came easy to me, and I did well in school, and I became the class clown, and I would poke fun at, you know, at my own weight and my own self. And, and, um, and I got real outgoing, and I found that I could make people laugh. And, and when you can make people laugh, they want you around for a while, see. And so um, I fell into it with a group in school that, uh, that I was, um, you know, it, I ended up, be, becoming a drunk too, and um, and so and I'm also a recovering alcoholic based on that. But the thing was that I kept perpetuating this behavior. Um, I got to high school, and I had reached 200 pounds, and um, and I was uh, outgoing. I joined every club there was because see, I need the attention. I needed the attention. If I would have had a thousand parents that would have doted on me, it would still wouldn't have been enough. Because you see, the glitch is not in the programming of my parents. The glitch is in my programming, see. There's never enough. I always went for more. You know, if one is good, six is better. That was my, the whole way I lived my life, see. And I was always afraid that there wouldn't be enough food. Um, my mother now was a single parent supporting two children in the late 50s, you know, and, um, and that was not an easy thing to do because divorce wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. And, and I always had this fear. There was never enough money. And I worked in the, in the school cafeteria when I was in junior high school in order to get my lunches, see, so that I could stop and buy, you know, whatever goodie I wanted for that particular time, you know, my treat that I had. Um, with the money that she had given me for lunch, and uh, and I would always do that. And the other thing is, I used and when I got to high school, some of the money that I had for lunch money, I saved and spent it on booze. You know, I mean that's just the way it was. And and I'm really grateful today, as I stand before you, that drugs were not prevalent when I was growing up, or I would have been there, done that. You know, and. Um, and I'm grateful that some of these things, if they had to come about at all, which I don't think so, but if they did, I'm glad they came on the market um, before I got to OA because at least I was protected by that. I began to get some insight on me. And, um, but I have tried everything there is for the gimmicks and weight loss schemes, you know, there was, the, the, of course, there was always the ever-present speed. And, you know, that's progressive because uh, Chapter 2, uh, Step 2, tells me that I have a progressive disease. And it's progressive to fatality. And I think sometimes when I go around and, and share at meetings, I hear people that, you know, they just kind of give me a fisheye look, you know, like, yeah, right. And I think that's one of the problems that we have with this compulsive overeating is we do not believe it's a life and death matter. See? And i got to tell you something. I have some friends in OA who came in and lost their weight and, and even had skin tucks and returned to compulsive eating. And they, you know, two guys from New York that were good friends of mine at the conference, and, and they came in at five... 600 and 700 pounds, respectively. They lost 400 and 500 pounds each and kept it off for quite some time and returned to compulsive eating. They had the skin tucks, and their bodies literally exploded because the skin would not. They put the weight back on, see? 
Now, what, what part of death do we not understand about that, see? And you know what? I'm only one bite away from joining those two guys. I've known people that practice anorexia to the point of death. Or they were so frail they couldn't even sit in a wheelchair when doctors would put them in the wheelchair. They were stented and splinted all over the place. And yet we don't believe that. Um, I've got a friend right now who's dealing with a woman that's older than me who is anorexic. And, and her internal organs have started to feed on each other. And, um, and so she had a heart attack a week ago last Saturday. And her sister called me. And her cousin called me and said, you know, what can we do? Guess what? Too late now. Um, but this, this is, it is, it's imperative that, that we learn that we are dealing with a life and death program. And, um, uh, or disease, I mean. And that this program is the only thing that's had, for me, any success in pulling me away from that. Um, as I mentioned, I was really um, uh, outgoing and enjoying everything, and I was a pre-engineering student. I wanted to become a me- mechanical engineer in school, and um, and so I was taking the math and science classes, but then I wanted to take an auto shop class. I, I grew up in the greater Detroit area, and uh, everybody there is either directly or indirectly were, you know, affiliated with the auto industry, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And... and um, and so I started petitioning the school to let me take auto shop when I was in high school, and, and they wouldn't do it. They claimed they didn't have facilities for girls. And, and so, you know, I mean, I figured I could go into the ladies' room and put a jumpsuit on as easy as the guys could, you know, but they still wouldn't do that. So um, what I did uh, was I went out and I learned how to, everything I could about a car, um, inside and out, up and down, backwards and forwards. And and uh, and on any given Saturday, I could be found in somebody's driveway or garage, you know, pulling a transmission or a rear end and, you know, or carburetting. And then the next day, Sundays, we'd be out at the local drag strips trying out the fruits of our rewards. And I got a hold of a little 54 Ford that had been hit by a car of nuns <laughs> in the left rear fender and crunched, you know, custom by crunch. And, um, but, you know, that didn't affect the way it performed, so I just went ahead and built up the engine, and, and I, I raced that a, a lot. And, um, and I, I won quite a bit of gold. Sometimes I'd win the gold because I was the only one running, but there were times, too, when I, when I would actually win. And, and that was the accomplishment thing. And, see, all this happened because I woke up one day when I got to high school and found myself hormones with feet. <laughs> And red, red-haired girls with freckles, had red hair then, um, that was a few years ago, red-haired girls with freckles get dates in high school, but fat red-haired girls with freckles don't get many dates, see. So I, the needing, in the, my need for attention, see, I figured this is the way to do it. And you know what? It worked just like the script I had written it from. And... Um, and so I became the, the guru of hot rods in the car. And I had all these guys that were calling the house, see, and asking questions about their hot rods. And, and I mean, I eventually began to get the fish eye from my mother saying, how come all these boys keep calling you every day? How come they're calling you? I don't know, Mom. I know. It's just helping them on their cars. That's all, you know. And I don't, to this day, I don't know if she ever really believed me, but the whole point was, it was. It, it was truly, it was innocent then. And, um, but I was getting the attention that I needed. 
One of the local papers picked up on it. And so they ran a story on me, you know. So I've got one of, and in those days, car dealerships, uh, sponsored drag racers, see. And so uh, they, they picked up on it, and what they did is they hired me for a Saturday afternoon job that they would um, uh, that they would take me down there, and I would teach powder puff mechanics to women, you know, how to change a tire and fill your windshield washer and that type of thing. And, it, I mean, I just soaked up that attention like you wouldn't believe. And, um, and it worked for a while, you know. Um, I also worked at a... Um, a movie theater after school, and I started out as an usherette and then became a candy girl. <laughs> we know how that goes. <laughs> um, and um, so anyway, uh, I mean, I had arrived at heaven. You know, there was no two ways about it. Um, what, and then something happened. The pendulum kind of swung back and forth, see. And, and, all the while, I'm, I'm just gaining weight, but I'm gaining it so slowly that um, I'm still, you know, getting my scripts renewed. And it was just a matter of course, you know. And so I'd go back and see the doctor, he'd renew the script, and I'd go on my way. Between the time that I was 17 and 21, um, my anorexia kicked in. And big time, see, it wasn't just a game anymore that I played between doctor visits. Uh, the anorexia started, and the only thing that went into my mouth was an addictive substance. And it was either alcohol, amphetamines, caffeine, nicotine, or sugar. Mm-hmm. And um, I have done a lot of damage to my body, and I'm not proud of that. I just want you to know that, because then when you get to be the age that I am now, you start have to clean up the wreckage of your past, you know, and sometimes you just have to deal with it. I've suffered malnutrition. I was anemic for many years, and it's only been about eight or nine years ago now that my doctor said to me, you know, I think you can stop taking the supplemental iron tablets now um, because I had really screwed it up. The speed um, messed up the valves along the deep veins in my legs, and so I have circulatory problems today. And... um, and so, you know, and one thing leads to another. But by the grace of God and the fellowship of OA, it, it could have been a lot worse, you know. And, um, and I've been given a way to deal with it. When I was 21, um, I, well, actually when I was 20, I met him through a car club that I belonged to. And, uh, and him changed my life. And, um, and so we were married. And... Uh, and uh, within the first year that we were married, our daughter was born, and here I am in an upper flat, um, not knowing what to do with this infant that is in front of me. Um, didn't know which end of bottle and which end of diaper, you know. <laughs> if it would have been a carburetor on it, I probably would have been able to figure it out. And by the time she was six months old, I was up to 250 pounds, and, um, you know, which was uncomfortable for me because in my anorexia, you know, at least I had had been a thin bride. Never thin enough, I might tell you. But I at least had been a thin bride when I got married. And um, and so anyway, um, then then it started. You know, all of the uh, disorganizations that, you know, the fat farms and the whole business, they, they came into being. And I have done everything that had ever occurred to me to do and very grateful that there are some things I didn't think of because I would have done those. Um, 
uh, I went to Weight Watchers, Tops, Bucks and Bells, you know, the whole bunch. And uh, and I have been belonged to I had a lifetime membership to a workout farm, and they all worked. They all worked. See, and I had a library of diets. And anybody who's ever stood in line in the supermarket has, you know, Woman's Day on this side of you and Family Circle on this side. And they all have the latest diet. And they all have the latest dessert. And I bought one of those every month, took them home, and tried the latest, okay, tried the latest diet. And when that didn't take 20 pounds off in 20 minutes, I went to the latest dessert. <laughs> But I never met a diet I didn't love. It was just wonderful. You know, there were some that were more favored than others, but um, I particularly cared, like the uh, drinking man's diet, you know, from the Mayo Clinic. I love that, except I put drinking woman's diet. Um, but the whole point was I was never able to stay on them. And the other thing is the yo-yoing started. I would gain enormous amounts of weight, and I would lose enormous amounts of weight on all of these things that I tried. I probably have gained and lost the equivalent of six people, you know. And, and OA provided a way out of that trap, too. You know, the, the yo-yoing stopped. Um, and so anyway, I had this friend of mine um, that we had grown up together. And she and her husband were married a month before my husband and I. And, and they were part of the crowd that we ran around with in high school. And... and um, and so we stayed pretty much in contact with a lot of those people from high school. And, and um, uh, so fast forward then to, you know, where I've gone through all of this stuff. Um, I need to tell you, too, that in the mid-60s, uh, a couple things happened that changed the course of my life as far as dieting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that was that there was this thing in this country called a drug revolution. And the hippies and the yippies and everybody else, you know, were doing all their things. And what happened was that drug laws were changed. And, and, and uh, speed drugs, speed-type drugs that had been available over the counter were no longer available over the counter. They were only by prescription. And then they were highly controlled substances. And um, so, you know, that... <laughs> That really put a crimp in what I was doing there at the point, except that my doctor continued to give me the prescriptions, but he died. And, you know, gracious and generous person that I am, instead of, you know, being sorry because this great man of medicine was dying, you know, I thought, what do I do now? You know, but God provides. <laughs> That's what I said then, you know. And the emergence of the diet doctor. And they were, there was one on almost every corner, see. And so I went to the diet doctor. And these people were like assembly lines because uh, there was one that I went into in southeastern Detroit, south, south, yeah, southeastern Detroit, that was above a photographic studio. And um, I told us at an OA meeting, it was at Harper and Van Dyke, and I told us at an OA meeting probably about 10 years ago out here in California, and a lady stood in the back and said, I went to him too! <laughs> and, and you would go up the stairs, and his waiting room held about 30 people. And on any given day, you know, you would go up the stairs, down the hall, to the waiting room. The, the waiting room would be packed, and they would be lined up 
out down the hall and down the stairs and down to the storefronts waiting to get in. So you would go in there, have your money in hand, and if the receptionist wasn't too busy, she would take you into this examining room, take your blood pressure, that's if she wasn't really rushed, and then the doctor would come in one door, hand you a bag of pills, you handed him the money, and you went out the other door and down the back way to your car. See, I mean, just like an assembly line, it was just fabulous, you know. <laughs> And um, and so that's what I started doing. Well, it didn't take me long, manipulator that I am, uh, and compensator. See, I'm the world's greatest compensator. Remember that suitcase of masks that I that I packed? Well, I was always packing that, and um, and always using it. And it didn't take me long to figure out that I was not going to be the hot topic of the American Medical Association's cocktail party. So I started doubling up on diet doctors. And eventually I tripled up. See, this. remember that part in Chapter 2 that says this is a progressive illness? Well, I didn't even know it was an illness, see. All that I knew was that I liked the high that I got from the diet pills, and I liked that continual energy surge that was there whenever I walked across the room, you know. Um, and, pretty, and, I, and so I continued in that type of a thing. Uh, hitting the diet doctors. I also lived across the river from Canada, and I could go over there, and we did a lot. We would make neighborhood drug runs for the diet pills because they were over-the-counter still in Canada. So people can't understand how drugs are coming into this country now. Well, let me tell you, if you've got 30 seconds, I can give you a complete schematic. You know? and, um, and it was easy to do. And uh, so we'd bring back the diet pills, you know, and, you know, unless you got greedy like me and I wanted more for myself, you know, we would divide them up around, sell them to the gals at the neighborhood. Um, what does that make me? A pusher again? Oh, well. Uh, that was then. This was now. <laughs> anyway, um, so it, it, they were just easy and they were available to get. You know, and uh, and so that kept me going. I had um, gone the gamut from the light, the, the uh, smallest dexedrines to the highest amphetamines, and then I had doubled up and tripled up on the diet pills. And four months before I got to OA, I hit the street for speed, and it was new on the streets. Then I cannot guarantee you what I have taken, because it was you know, most of the time it was cut with baking soda and that type of thing. and um, But who knows, you know. I mean, all I knew was that I could take these tablets and I got the same effect. But I had to take more of them. So that tells you something, too. Anyway, um, back to my friend Mary Jane. Mary Jane and I had known each other for a long time. And, and um, so Mary Jane's hobby was that she uh, read the, the personal columns in the newspapers. And we had, like, three Detroit newspapers, and then there was one of our local uh, rags that, that printed. And, and she would, every single day, she would read these, these um, uh, personal ads. And uh, she said to me um, one time, she said, you know, there's a, oh, and our husbands both worked nights. Although it was at different places, they had done a rotation of nights. And so they would be out of the house by 10 o'clock. Our kids were still young, and so we didn't have to get up the next morning. So we would get on the phone. They were out by 10. We were on the phone by 11, and we would talk for three or four hours. And the last half hour of every conversation always ended up with, 
Do you know what I have eaten since we have been on this phone? <laughs> and we would start talking about the fantasies, you know, of what we were going to do when we lost that 50 pounds that we needed to lose. Or, you know, and it always ended up with the, the war stories would then begin. Or the can you top this? And we were always amazed at what we had consumed while talking on the phone to each other, even things crunchy, mm-hmm. and the other person didn't know it. See? <laughs> That's because we're all great compensators. See? We know how to do it. We know how to play the games. We know how to eat the food. And so she said to me um, one time, she said, I'm... Um, I saw this little personal ad for Overeaters Anonymous. And she said, there's apparently it's meetings. And she said, "Uh, I think I'm going to go. She said, are you interested? And I said, an ad in the newspaper for Overeaters Anonymous? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what's it cost? She said, it's it's apparently free. So they give us the name and the phone number uh, for a contact. And I said... um, no, it's probably another diet club. I, I'm not interested. Um, see, I had been to all of these diet clubs, and um, to me that was the most degrading part of my life. I mean, you stand in line waiting to get on a scale, wishing that you had plucked your eyebrows and trimmed your nails and shaved your legs <laughs> so that you'd be lighter, see. And you get up there, and some bucket mouth that's sitting there lets God and everybody know, Oh, you lost a quarter of a pound! And everybody goes, Yay for you, you know. Or worse, you get on that, and they say, Oh, you bad girl, you gained a quarter of a pound. Well, you know what that does to somebody that's shame-based like me, see? And, um, you know, I thought you well, I won't tell you what I wanted to do with skin, but at any rate, I just had had it. I, wouldn't, I went to one of those places, one of those popular clubs, and it's still in business today. I'm told they don't do the same thing anyway, but... If you gained any weight at all, they put you in the corner with a dunce cap on your head and a piggy sign around your neck. Well, hello. Welcome to the world's greatest compensators, see? I pulled the class clown, the jolly fat person, masks out of my suitcase, and I would hide behind those masks, and I would, I would laugh and I would entertain everybody because God forbid you ever know how much pain I was in. And and I spent my whole life doing that. My size and my weight was my greatest source of pain, but I didn't know how to stop. And so pretty soon I would be having so much fun over there in the corner that the next week when we went, I would have some company over in the corner, see. And so here again, you know, I'm on my upward spiral again. And, and pretty soon we'd be having a party in that corner over there, all of us with the dunce caps on our heads and the piggy signs around our neck. See? I had a, a lecturer come to me and say one time, you know, I don't think we're helping you. I think, I think maybe you, find, you need to find another meeting. And I thought that that was the most atrocious thing that she could say to me. I mean, she wasn't willing to kick me out because she still wanted my money that I paid every week, see. But um, maybe you need to find another meeting. And that was the story of my life. Maybe you need to find another diet. Maybe you need to find another doctor. Maybe you need to find another magic button or magic bullet, whatever the case is, see. And I spent a lifetime doing it. So I, you know... 
Huskins said to my friend Mary Jane, no, I've had it with the diet clubs. So you going? See, Mary Jane, her doctor tried to put her on the diet pills too when she was about my age, and she couldn't handle them. Uh, she had an absolute physical reaction to them, so they took them off. So at least I could, you know, I could do that, but she had never. And Mary Jane, had, I had never known her then. I had always known her. She was even a fad bride, you know, which I kind of lorded over her at times, you know. At least I wasn't a fat bride. Um, but, you know, that was the height of my anorexia. I was crazier than a bib bun, but I wasn't a fat bride, see. Um, I can remember crying myself to sleep on my knees, praying at night my my bed when I was in high school. All I ever wanted to be was thin. Thank you. And it never happened. See? And so I developed this concept of God as out solving wars or famines or natural disasters and not interested in me at all. See? So Mary Jane goes off to OA and she comes back the next week and we're on the phone in one of our nightly conversations and she gives me a total report. It's based on the 12 steps and the 12 conditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a spiritual group. I said, hold it right there. And I rolled my eyes, you know, I said, spiritual group. She said, yeah. She said, it, it's a spiritual program of recovery. And, and she said, you have, um, not only do you follow a food plan, but she said, um, but you, they had 12 steps and 12 traditions that you follow, too. And I said, For, forget it. I had spent uh, too many hours of my youth in Sunday school hearing that um, just as our earthly fathers love and protect and care for us, so God, our Heavenly Father, loves and protects and cares for us even more. And then I would go home from Sunday school and get beat up and never know why. So I grew up with a distorted concept of a higher power. And what I had done in my adulthood was that I had carried that over to where I had rejected that concept of that childhood God that I had learned about. And, and what had re- been there was an old man with a long white beard and some heavenly throne that had lightning and thunder, in, in one in each hand, and when I was bad, I got zapped. And when I was good, he was looking the other way. Wanted no part to do with that. See, what I know now, because of inventories in Overeaters Anonymous, is that what I had done was that I had, um, I had confused religion with spirituality. And if you're new here tonight, I want to tell you there is a difference as far as my understanding is anyway, but it took me coming back to a few meetings of OA before I found out what that difference was. I went in thinking it was a religious organization. As a matter of fact, the first night I came to OA, I thought it was a cult. Um, Anyway, so I said, no thanks, I'm not interested. And I still continued to gain weight. I finally, I had stopped weighing at 250. My thinking was that if I didn't get on the scale, I wouldn't gain weight. (laughs) By the time I got here, I had three closets full of clothes and varying sizes and only two outfits that fit me. I had a two-piece suit with a high neck that had a fur collar, and if I didn't put a blouse or a sweater on underneath it, I could button it. And that's what I wore to church on Sundays. When, and I had a purple polyester pantsuit 
And everybody knows that polyester is good for 50 pounds either way, you know. <laughs> so that's what I washed out and more every day. See? Um, and those were my uniforms. But, you know, I wasn't willing to take on anything that, that faintly resembled something like a religious program. Anyway, time went by, and although Mary Jane and I talked for several, uh, several times a week on the phone, I didn't have any occasion to talk to her until the following, this is January, and the following September, um, she had to bring some papers by my house to, um, because we were working on a civic project together, and I had to sign these papers. And um, so anyway, and, uh, during that time, I would say to her every once in a while, well, how are you doing on your OA program? And she'd say, yeah, I've lost 25 pounds, or, well, you know what, I've been relieved of 40 pounds, or 65 pounds, or whatever. So she brings these papers up, and I'm standing in my front dining room, looking out the front window. She pulls up in front of the house, gets out of the car, and I didn't recognize this woman. She had lost 80 pounds. I had never seen her thin, could not believe it. And she came, as she walked around her car and up my front sidewalk, my chin was getting lower and lower. You know, cannot believe that this is the same. I'll tell you what kind of friend I am. She knocks on the door. I open the door and she's saying, come in, let me take your coat. Can I get you something to drink? I grab her by the arm, jerk her in the house, slam the door and say, if it works for you, it'll work for me. <laughs> and we laugh about that now. Um, but you know what? The following Friday night was September 28, 1973, and I went into the OA meeting with her um, because I had seen it working in somebody else. And, and our eating lives and our weight loss lives had paralleled each other so much, except for the drugs, that I knew that I was reading a big book that may be the only big book that I would ever read. And I walked into that room, and there were about mm, seven or eight people standing around. Sorry, men. They were all women then, and um, which I'm glad has changed. But at any rate, um, they were all thin. So I nudged Mary Jane, and I said, are you sure we're in the right place? <laughs> and she said, relax. She said, yes, um, all of these people in this room have been able to uh, lose an enormous amount of weight and keep it off. And that's the part that got my attention, see. And she said, if you, we had coffee breaks in those days. She said, if you check with somebody on break, they'll, they'll tell you how much they lost. And I did. I mean, I went to all of them, you know. And there was 80 pounds, 75 pounds, 60 pounds, 100 pounds. Uh, the woman that later became my sponsor after, I had a relapse after I'd been here a couple of years. And, and when I came back, it was a new person that became my sponsor. And she's the one that had brought OA to, to Michigan from Texas. She had been in AG's group that had originally formed as Gluttons Anonymous down in Texas. You know, they do things different down there. <laughs> anyway, um, and, and so she had brought it to Michigan when she had moved up there. And she became my sponsor and, um, for many years until I moved to California 18 years ago. And um, so anyway, these people were just, I mean, and they were happy. They were legitimately happy. They didn't have a mask on. And so, uh, at any rate, they they gave me soft literature. They did that as 12-step work that in those days. And, and so I'm sitting there on the break, and I, after I talking to these people, and I'm looking through these, and I got 
two food plants that are in my hand. That's what they had when I got here. One was on a gray piece of paper and the other was on an orange piece of paper. And all of a sudden a shadow comes over this and I look up and here's Mary Jane standing there. And she said, she, my friend of 20 years, docile Mary Jane, turned into Hitler's sister. <laughs> she said, you're going to eat what's on that gray piece of paper and you're going to call me every morning after you've made your food plan for the day, and you are going to eat whatever you write down based upon what's on that gray sheet. And I'm thinking, this is not the woman I walked in here with. <laughs> I know they said that everything changes in OA, but I'm not that bad. Anyway, she said, and you're not going to eat anything else unless you call me first, including the crazies. When you get into the crazies, I want you to call me. I said, crazies? I, that's one thing I've never eaten. What are the crazies? <laughs> And she said, you're going to find out. Um, the instant spiritual experience that I found that night was that um, I had, um, that was the last day, and then diet pills had crossed my lips. Thank you, God, and the fellowship of OA. And the rest of the experiences were not that dramatic, let me tell you. Most of them have been only hindsight experiences. I... Um, Lived my life by three dates on the calendar. Tomorrow, Monday, or January 1st. <laughs> and you know why? Because that's when I start my diet. That was my whole life. That's when I started the newest diet. So this was Friday night. <clears throat> and that meant I was going to have to start a diet on Saturday. That was unheard of where I came from, see. <laughs> Anyway, I had made this big ethnic dish for my family before I went to the meeting that night. And I had cleaned up the kitchen and put all the leftovers away. And so I get home from the meeting and I drag out this literature. That I'm gonna, but first, I drag out the leftovers, see. And I'm going to have my last binge before my diet starts tomorrow. I mean, you one has to be fortified to start a diet on Saturday, you know. <laughs> I made up this big bowl of this stuff and sat down to read my OA literature. First thing I pulled out the envelope was the, the 15 questions that you asked yourself to determine if you're a compulsive eater. And I don't remember what they all say, and it's not important. The first one says, do you eat when you're not hungry? And I said, of course not. I'm always hungry. <laughs> See? And I had had a doctor tell me one time, Nancy, you're digging your own grave with your fork. And I thought, what does he know? I don't use a fork. <laughs> That's what finger foods were for. I've sliced and slivered my way through life. See? And so this whole thing was new to me. And, and I think that um, I wasn't really willing to call myself a compulsive eater by the time I finished that, those 15 questions. But I was leaning in that direction fast. And, um, and I did. I, I called and I got abstinent the next day. And, um, and, and that embarked me on uh, 34 years, this program. I had left for five months. After I was here for two years, this disease is so insidious. And I had spent two holiday seasons abstinent and through detox because I detoxed from the drugs, I detoxed from the alcohol, I detoxed from the sugar. That was the hardest part, detoxing from that sugar, man, that'll kill you. Anyway, um, 
at a Thanksgiving dinner, somebody offered me something that I had that was not on my food plan. But I was cocky, and my ego at the loss of 145 pounds, I've got this down right now, see. And, um, and I know what I'm doing, see. And I'm confident, because I've been in a step meeting for two years as well, see. And so I know what I'm doing. Well, there was a whole lot of attitude, and I think it's page 157 of the big book, talks about the attitude that precedes the first drink. And I'm going to tell you something. That's where you'll find my picture. <laughs> and if you look careful enough, you'll find your picture there too. And it's so insidious we don't even see it. I said, well, sure, I'll have that. And it wasn't even a dessert, for God's sake. You know, It was something that was perfectly okay, but it wasn't on my food plan. So I gave up all my disciplines. And... Um, the next day I called all the people that I sponsored and said, I can't sponsor you anymore because I broke my abstinence. But did I call my sponsor? No. I could do this by myself. I could get back on track. See? Well, by the time Christmas came, I was back to the nonstop eating because I'm lovingly known as a grazer. And I used to eat from the time my feet hit the floor in the morning until the time that I went to bed at night. And I was back to the nonstop eating and, you know, this... Sweet potatoes, what I had at Thanksgiving dinner, had turned into all the Christmas goodies by the time they got here. So I was nonstop eating, and I was out on a five, five months. And this one woman who eventually became my sponsor had called me every month just to say, Hi, I miss you. No intimidation, no guilt, just no want you to know that I miss you and I love you. And um, eventually, you know, through a strange circumstances, which are another story for another time, I did get back to OA. And you know what? I'm one of the blessed ones because I can't tell you how many people I've known in my lifetime in OA who have left here and have not been able to make it back. Um, I really believe that it's harder to recover from compulsive eating than it is from alcoholism. And, and I believe that we have to work twice as hard and we have to be twice as vigilant. And I got back, and I'll tell you the story in closing. Um, when I got back, I screwed around with a gray sheet. I went immediately to the kitchen drawer and drug out the gray sheet, and I was going to do that. And I started calling my food to Carolyn. She was my sponsor then. And I screwed around with this for almost two months. And I would get a day on and three days off or you know, vice versa, or a half day on, and I would screw up the rest of the day. And I just couldn't get any abstinence together. And so I went to my sponsor, and, and I said, um, I said, I'm just having a terrible time getting abstinent. I said, I just don't know what to do about this thing. And she said, well, um, you've got, you got to surrender. You've got to, you got to um, not, it's not good enough to practice a diet. That's why OA is different. We're not a diet and calories club. She said, we are a program. And she said, you just have to surrender and accept the gift for today. And I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, okay, suppose that I have a gift for you. And I put it in a pretty box. And I put a pretty ribbon around it. And I, and I set it out on the table. And she said, I say, here's a gift for you, Nancy. She said, you know what? You can come up and you can look at that gift. You can pick it up. You can shake it to hear what it sounds like. And she said, you can sniff it to see if it has a fragrance. You can put it down and you can dance all around it. You can walk away from it and never come back. But it is not your gift until you take it. 
And she said, when you take it, then you can take it away, open it up, and find out what's inside of it. And she said, God does the same thing. She said, God has a pretty gift for you every day. And he puts it in a pretty box with a pretty ribbon around it, and he puts it out here, and he says, Nancy, here's your, here's your abstinence for today. And she said, and you can do the same thing. You can pick it up and shake it, or you can sniff it, or you can listen, or you can put it down, you can walk away from it, you can dance around it, you can forget it. But until you're willing to take it that day and take it away and find out what's in it, you don't know. It's not a gift. It's only a gift offering. You're taking that gift, and it's different every day. And she said, so you, what you have to do is you have to make an agreement that you're going to take that gift every day. And I did. I, finally it clicked. And I know it's renewable every day. And it's my special gift. It's not the same one as yours. It's not the same as his. It's not the same as anybody in this room. Because that's what the gift of abstinence is. It's refraining from compulsive eating. And that gift is different for each one of us to be carried out every single day. We have some guidelines. I accepted that. That's been 12,457 days ago today. And I have never made a mistake. God has never made a mistake in the gift that he's given to me. So thank you for having me here tonight, for allowing me to share a few brief moments with you, and I love you all.